The Heather McCoy Show. And welcome to The Heather McCoy Show. Uh, my next guest is the author of the book, Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle That Defined a Generation. Welcome to the show, Blake. Hey, Heather. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, you're quite welcome. Um, it was a great book, and I enjoyed reading that. Uh, it, it's about 555 pages, and I finished it in three days. So it caught my attention, and I just would, you know, 10-hour stretches of just reading it. Um, what caught your that's, attention? Uh, Wait, that's I'm sorry. Great. That's really the best compliment. It was, uh, it's a very rich story, um, but it was so important to me that it was very accessible and that it uh, was as thrilling for people to read as it was for those who lived it. So I'm really glad that you were able to digest it so quickly. Yeah, and it's interesting how things uh, shifted. Where the things that were perceived as strengths turned into weaknesses. But before we get onto that, what caught your attention about the war between Sega and Nintendo that occurred in the early '90s to inspire you you to write the book? Well, um, before I was the author of the book about the battle between Sega and Nintendo, I was a soldier on the front lines of the battle when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in the 80s and early 90s, and so, uh, you know, the battle between Sega and Nintendo was a real thing that I felt like defined my life and defined my social life um, back in the day. So, you know, I grew up, I had a Nintendo, like one in three homes in America, the original 8-bit NES, and then I desperately wanted a Super Nintendo, but my parents refused to get it for me and my brother because um, basically they didn't want to give any more money to Nintendo and didn't like the fact that it wasn't backwardly compatible. And so uh, I ended up at the Sega Genesis, and I was very happy with that. But as I thought back on all this um, a few years ago, you know, it was interesting to me that it was a business decision, the idea to make a system not backwardly compatible that ultimately sealed my fate in the console wars and uh, made me want to learn more about what was going on behind the scenes. And to my shock and uh, to also to my pleasure, there, there were no books on the subject, and not just about the battle between Sega and Nintendo, but there are just so few books about the history of video games and the business of video games that given how large the industry is today, larger than the film world and the music world, it, it was shocking to me. And uh, But a good problem to have, as I've been able to try to fill that void. Yeah. Um, what, just briefly, for the listeners that might not know, what are the respective histories for Sega and Nintendo that go farther back than the 1980s and the 1990s when we remember them? What were the origin stories of each company? Sure. So it's, it's, very, it's pretty interesting. Um, Sega... It goes back to the 60s. It was actually founded, it's a Japanese company that was founded by an American who had been stationed over there uh, during the war named David Rosen. And so they began as a coin-operated company, uh, pinball machines and electronic, electronic games, and actually even those photo booths, those electronic photo booths that were in the movie theaters. Um, and so they, have, they had a lineage of arcade games. And then Nintendo actually dates back to uh, the 1890s, and they, are, uh, they were a playing card company, a very prestigious one. And then around the 70s, um, they wanted to get into this arcade business. And, uh, and for a while, Sega you know, was much more successful than them because they had uh, a head start. Um, but that was all sort of a, a prelude to what would come because the arcade industry, as successful as it was, was nothing compared to the home video game. And Nintendo just was absolutely dominant in the 1980s when they came out with the 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System. Um, they were so synonymous with video games in a way that Jacuzzi has become with, with hot tubs and with Kleenex with tissues that Nintendo literally took out ads saying that, that Nintendo did not mean video games because they were trying to protect their trademark. Um, and so, you know, these two dueling companies, it wasn't much of a duel because Nintendo was so successful. And so heading into 1990, Nintendo owned over 95% of this 
$5 billion video game industry, and they um, were challenged by Sega, who was just uh, this, this underdog. They weren't even the only challenger. Um, and then in the next five years, Sega really gave Nintendo a run for their money, and there was a lot of reasons for that, but the two biggest were the the leadership of Tom Kalinske, who was brought on and who came from a background uh, at Mattel and Matchbox and uh, the toy industry, and uh, also the creation of a familiar friend to most of us, Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did Nintendo revive the video game market post-1983 crash? Most people know that as the crash that started when E.T. the video game came out. Yeah, so the interesting thing for me was that, um, you know, I spent uh, about three years researching and writing the book, and for the first year, I was speaking primarily with Sega people, and, uh, you know, this it was the story was uh, presented to me as a David and Goliath battle, which it certainly was, and that was part of what made it compelling to me, and part of what makes it compelling to gamers and non-gamers alike. Um, but the interesting thing was that the Goliath in this battle, Nintendo, um, seven years earlier or five years earlier, was... David and their own David and Goliath struggle, and that was this idea of resurrecting the video game industry. After the, the crash of Atari and the E.T. crisis in 1983, people thought video games were dead. And, you know, in hindsight, that may seem like a, a sort of conclusion to reach. Um, but, but at the time, I think it made sense, and there was really a version of history where video games kind of went away because computers were becoming so popular, and people thought, why would you need a dedicated console just for video games when you can play them on the computer? Um, but Nintendo felt that there was a reason that if you had something dedicated, you could get a certain quality of games, and they were able to revive the market um, in 1985 and then in 1986 and throughout the rest of the 80s with uh, you know a rigid control, unlike their predecessors at Atari, and also uh, fantastic games that many of us remember, like Super Mario Brothers, like Tyson's Punch-Out! and Zelda, and many, many more. Who was Tom uh, Kleinsky, and what qualities do you think he had that led Sega president um, Haru uh, Nakahama to track him down on vacation in Hawaii? Um, so Tom Kleinsky, I would uh, soon learn, was actually the adult most responsible for my childhood, other than my parents. Uh, <laughs> the first time that he and I spoke, uh, you know, my first question was, of course, how did you end up at Sega? And we spent uh, about 45 minutes talking about his time before Sega, and I was just blown away. Everything he said, everything he had been involved in, had, had such a tremendous influence on my childhood, um, from his time at J. Walter Thompson, the ad agency, helping to develop the Flintstones Kids Chewable Vitamins, to going to Mattel and reviving the Barbie line after Barbie had had her first down year and was maybe going to be either discontinued or just not really focused on. Um, and then all along the way, you know, iconic toys like He-Man Masters of the Universe, Popples was a personal favorite of mine. Um, and so he just really had the magic touch. And, you know, lightning doesn't strike that many times. Uh, there's obviously something very special to what Tom does, his leadership style. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, reasons why that's the case. I think that, uh, you know, leadership is, is a difficult science to pin down, but I think there's a certain confidence. Um, and, and vision that he brings to the table that is uh, unlike most others in the world, and you know his track record proves that. And it's really just uh, you know a belief. You, I've, you know, I'm uh, susceptible to sports metaphors very often, and you always hear about uh, you know new coaching regimes and how they just change the culture. And, and Tom really brings a winning culture to wherever he's gone throughout his career. And I think that was one of the big first steps. And then also just the idea of making video games about more than just video games, about more than just what you play on screen, but actually adding a story to the characters and that, you know, whether it's Sonic the Hedgehog and creating a backstory so that he's a character who 
as is as popular today as he was 20 years ago, or just creating a story to the concept of playing video games. I mean, uh, back back in the early 90s, video games were almost like the equivalent of a the boy version of having a, a tea party. Like I remember asking my father to play video games with me, and and he did it because it was sort of a, a nice thing to do. But it, it felt like this, this is for kids. Video games are for kids. But Sega. Um, under Tom's leadership, really transformed what video games meant to the culture and made them more of a mainstream activity. And that was part of their plan to to take on Nintendo was to go after a part of the market that Nintendo was not really focused on. Yeah, I had a different dad slightly. He actually mapped out on paper the entire map <laughs> to the Legend of Zelda, and he would play that for hours on end. Um, so that's a really wonderful dad. So how did you guys divide <laughs> up your time playing? Um, he played most of the time, and then um, like we would get it after school, and then he would get it at nighttime. So we so we had a brief two hour window before he started. Oh, that's really great. Um, I wish that my father could have learned from yours. But uh, you know, I, I think there were certainly a lot of parents like that. And and you know, what I would also say about what what Tom did and what Sega did was that they just really brought that perception out that, that video games can be for other people. So even though uh, maybe my dad really did secretly love playing Mario and he just tried to pretend like it was a childish thing, it, it was it was a strange thing for adults to be doing, something they weren't usually boasting about, um, whereas nowadays the, the median age of the gamers in the early 30s, um, which is partially due to us growing up, but also just due to the fact that video games have changed and, and the type of entertainment that they are. What was the market position like for Nintendo relative to Sega in the United States, as well as Japan, before Tom Klinsky uh, joined Sega in 1990? Um, it was completely dominant. Um, Nintendo had over 95% of the video game market. And uh, if you look at, back in 1989, if you look at the top 30 best-selling toys, uh, 26 of them are Nintendo games or Nintendo-related products, which is astonishing. And, uh, you know, Nintendo accounted for usually between 20 and 25% of the uh, revenue at these retailers, uh, which gave them tremendous leverage. And uh, Nintendo exerted an enormous amount of control over retailers and third-party game makers, um, which in their minds they were doing because they wanted to avoid an Atari-like crash. But to the minds of others, including the U.S. government, that they were accused of being monopolists and you know, making it very, very difficult for competitors like Sega to even get a foot in the door, regardless of how good or bad their games were. Uh, I, one of the things I found is interesting was he was hired for this job. He goes to as Tom goes to SOA, Sega of America, and then he finds a bunch of trap doors lying beneath him and without him knowing it. Can you talk about some of the trap doors and how he overcame them? Yeah, absolutely. So you know what? Um, in addition to living through the battle between Sega and Nintendo. Uh, to, to more fully answer your initial question of what prompted me to write this book and re what really made me want to follow this world, it was it was the characters. It, it, it's uh, you know putting faces to these names, to these concepts, and and Tom was just a great protagonist for the story. Um, in addition to the vision and leadership he brings to the table, just his experience getting into the world was so fascinating. Um, you know, you sort of alluded to that he was on the beach in Hawaii in 1990 and between jobs trying to figure out what his next move would be. And uh, he was approached unexpectedly by Hayao Nakayama, who was the uh, head of Sega Enterprises in Japan. And Tom said, uh, you know, something kind of sarcastic like, uh, you're blocking the sun, what's going on there? And uh, <laughs> Nakayama said, I I'm looking for you. I, I, I tracked you down. I want you to come run Sega and take on Nintendo. And uh, 
Tom, you know, knew as much about video games as, as a typical father would at the time as someone who's tangentially related to the toy industry, but he didn't know very much about um, what the industry was like at the time and, and where it was headed. And so he uh, left his family in the middle of their Hawaiian vacation and went off to Japan to uh, check out um, Sega's products and upcoming technology and was blown away by the 16-bit system that they offered. And uh, it seemed like the uh, not not just the challenge of a lifetime, but also the opportunity of a lifetime to really um, create a mark and, and show that the video game industry could ha- could uh, sustain more than one competitor. But you know, as you mentioned, there were a lot of trapdoors along the way, and, and a lot of these really related to this fact that um, the parent company, Sega Enterprises, is in Japan, and uh, Sega of America, the subsidiary, um, is in America. And, uh, you know, as much as we all remember this, this gigantic battle between Sega and Nintendo and that went back and forth and Sega was this successful underdog, in Japan that was never really the case. Um, the Mega Drive, as it was called over there, the 16-bit system, it, it, it never had more than 20% of the market, whereas over here, Sega at one point was able to surpass Nintendo. And this created a cultural conflict um, because the subsidiary under Tom's leadership was much more successful and the parent company, and, and for good reason. They took greater risks, and they had, um, you know, they were able to break into Nintendo's lead. And so this created a, a sense of resentment and jealousy. And so, you know, when I went into this book writing about Sega and Nintendo in this epic battle, and so I naturally assumed that that would be the most interesting battle to take place. But what really I found more fascinating was the civil war between Sega of America and Sega of Japan, which is really what kind of ultimately led to Sega's downfall, or at least their exit from the console business. Oh, yeah. Um, when you interviewed uh, Tom Kalinske for the book, did you get a sense of how thin of a thread Tom felt like he was on when he, he went before the Sega board directors and presented his four-point plan to start competing with Nintendo? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the, the pivotal moments in this battle is uh, a couple months after Tom joins Sega, um, he goes to this big board meeting in Japan to present his ideas, to present uh, a four-point plan for how Sega could actually have a chance to go up against Nintendo. Um, and this included things like packaging Sega's best character, which was Sonic, um, into the system and giving the software away for free, uh, lowering the price, focusing more on licensing, developing games in America as opposed to just Japan. Um, and after delivering this speech, everyone in the room just thought it was the stupidest thing that could possibly have been said. Um, Tom assumed that he was going to be fired and that... Uh, that was going to be a, a very short career for him at Sega. But to his surprise, Hayao Nakayama said, I hired you to do things your way, and we're going to do this, even though nobody in this room agrees with you, and I perhaps don't even agree with you. I trust you. Um, and, and not only did that work, but interestingly enough, um, that autonomy that was given to Tom and Sega of America and that faith paid off, and, and also it was later taken away, and, and the, the results were quite the opposite. Yeah, one of the st- I remember playing Altered Beast as a kid because my 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 friend got that Genesis before like it, it was it was basically the summer of Genesis, the sixteen weeks marketing plan that they had out, and he had Altered Beast, and we were just blown away by the graphics. We didn't care for the game much, but it was just like it was like watching HD TV for the first time if you're from this generation, and it's like sixteen bits was like taking cataracts off of your eyes on the TV <laughs> screen. It was pretty impressive. It was, and, you know, that sort of um, really brings to light what Sega of America did. You know, 
definitely the difference between 8-bit and 16-bit to those of us back then was a, a huge difference. It felt like HD versus standard definition, and it felt like a huge change. But graphics alone aren't going to sustain your interest in the system. The games need to be good. And as we mentioned earlier, Sega had a, a strong lineage in the arcade industry, but that's sort of <clears throat> predicated on getting you to put quarters in. Once you have unlimited quarters, um, the games maybe weren't as fun. And that's where Tom's experience with, with building stories and, and the power of story really comes into play in, in shaping games more, more likely to succeed on consoles and just the direct, taking the direction of Sega um, more towards something substantial. One of the most fascinating stories in the book is how um, Tom basically packaged Sonic the Hedgehog with the Genesis because in Japan it was sold separately. And so that came, it was like the in-bed game like Mario Brothers was for the Nintendo system. And the story involves defanging a hedgehog, losing his girlfriend with the big boobs, and what to do with 250,000 old Genesis systems that had <laughs> altered Beast as the game that came with it. It's amazing how he overcame those hurdles. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that we can all agree that, that you know, Tom and Hayao Nakayama and, and us kids wouldn't have had the fun and the success of Sega without the games themselves being good. So credit is due to Yuji Naka, the genius programmer, and Oshima-san and, and the others who made the game. Uh, but, but there was also a huge marketing component as well. And the original incarnation of Sonic the Hedgehog, um, you know, he had bangs. He had a busty girlfriend named Madonna. He was in a <laughs> rock band. He wasn't quite the, uh, the Mickey Mouse character, that icon that we all know and love and that, that is as popular today as ever before. And that was a lot of what Sega of America um, was able to bring to the table. And I think that that's a part of the reason that, that Sonic, unlike other great games and, and great characters like Crash Bandicoot, is, uh, is still around today and as popular as ever. Is there images floating around the web of the uh, prototype Sonic with the fangs and the and the girlfriend and all that? Because that that picture just seemed like that was bizarre. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's definitely uh, pictures of him in the rock band with a <laughs> alligator member and a monkey, and there's also pictures of him with uh, Madonna, and so uh, it's just really interesting to see, um, especially in hindsight, knowing that the game was so successful. Um, really, what goes into Everything that we would open as kids that we, that we put at the top of our Christmas list, you sort of just imagine these games come out of thin air or that the games themselves are all that matters. But there's a, there's a whole other um, aspect to it that, that really uh, that changes the way that you perceive the game um, and showed me that maybe previous to writing, prior to writing the book, I maybe thought marketing was a dirty word and just sort of was like people trying to sell me things. But you actually see the transformative power of marketing and how it could take a product and take it to another level. Um, and, and, you know, that that is one of my other favorite parts of the book was uh, when Sega hired uh, Goodby, Berlin, and Silverstein, which was the ad agency that came up with uh, those Welcome to the Next Level commercials that people probably remember favorably due to the Sega scream that would end the uh, Sega um, that was at the end of all those commercials. And, you know, Sega really used marketing to transform the way that people played and perceived video games. Well, the marketing, too, was like the Sega was already on the market when Tom arrived at Sega of America. And so basically with the repackaging of Sonic with the box and then the gift card to get Sonic if you had an Altered Beast cartridge and you just get the Altered Beast cartridge for free, essentially, that was a relaunch of a system that was already out there where Nintendo didn't even have a 16-bit 
uh, system going. So that was basically Tom had like a six months head start on his opponent. That was really big in launching Genesis. Yeah, I mean, one of the the other things that I found very impressive uh, that Tom and Think of America were able to do is, you know, we all know the adage, you only get one chance to make a first impression. Well, as you just mentioned, the Genesis came out in October of 1989, very unsuccessful for a year before Tom joined, and then even a year and a half before Sonic came out. Um, but but they were but the the team was really able to sort of repackage what the Genesis was and include Sonic, and, and launch it months prior to the Super Nintendo coming out and really make another first impression and, and change what the Genesis was. Um, and they did have that advantage of launching a few months before the Super Nintendo. And sort of, you know, my favorite stories about Sega was uh, sort of the renegade mentality and just the grassroots marketing campaign um, tendencies that they had. And so one of the stories that really um, highlights just their philosophy was before the Super Nintendo came out, um, Sega went around the country and had a head-to-head mall tour between Sonic and Mario, between Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo. And this was months before the Super Nintendo was actually out in America. They were using the Super Famicom from Japan. Um, and that's, you know, Nintendo didn't like this very much. They threatened lawsuits privately to Sega. Um, but these were just the kind of tactics that Tom felt were necessary to create a platform for Sega. You talk about some of the antagonizing behaviors that Nintendo displayed towards retailers, towards customers, that that really tilted the playing field towards Sega for that short, brief time. Yeah, I mean, Nintendo was a a very litigious company. Um, And some good examples to really take you back into the mindset were um, they they sued rental stores, whether it was Blockbuster or Mom and Pop Shops that were selling that were renting out Nintendo games. Nintendo did not want this to happen. They felt like that was a, a, a potential sale that wasn't being made. Um, and, and Sega, you know, they sort of zigged wherever Nintendo zagged. And one of their strategies was to embrace the uh, the, the retail, the rental chain. You know, I, I like this idea of Sega sort of forming a cartel of Nintendo's enemies because there were plenty. Um, and so Sega became very cozy with the uh, rental chains. Um, they also, with some of the third-party developers that Nintendo had sued for reverse engineering the system, um, like the video game company Penguin, uh, and also Sony. Sony is a, is a really interesting variable in this entire story, um, especially because, as we all know, they're, they're successful today with the PlayStation. Um, but in, in June of 1991, Sony and Nintendo were planning to move forward with a uh, CD attachment that Sony would be making for the Super Nintendo. Um, and Sony at their press conference at the Consumer Electronics Show, announced this partnership. Uh, and then the following day, Nintendo was supposed to announce it, and that would be the one that most of the press would be in, and sort of the official one. Um, but a day after Sony announced this great partnership with Nintendo, Nintendo announced the partnership with Philips, and very publicly snubbed Sony, um, and, and that was not forgotten. And that was an opportunity that Tom saw, and he worked closely with Olaf Olafsson, the president of Sony Publishing Entertainment, their video game software division, um, and, and they were very close to coming up with what would have been the Sega PlayStation or, you know, the next generation system after the Genesis that would have been manufactured and, and made with Sony. Um, so one of the most fun things about writing and researching the book was playing the what if game and sort of looking at it, a, a, an alternate timeline of what could have happened. And what maybe should have happened if not for this conflict between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. Yeah. Is Olaf Olsen as Mr. Spock-like as he appears to be in the book? <laughs> yes. 
Um, Olaf Olsson, in addition to having perhaps the greatest name of all time, um, really is <laughs> as intriguing and as mysterious as he is in the book. Um, he is a, a true Renaissance man. He uh, grew up in Iceland. He was initially a, studying to be a physicist at Tufts University. He decided he didn't want to be a physicist, and he got into computers. Uh, meanwhile, he continued to, uh, to develop his writing talent. He's published four books um, over the past few decades uh, and has actually won some awards, some Icelandic literary awards. Um, and meanwhile, as, as intellectual and impressive as he is and as fun as he has to speak with, he still always reminds me of a James Bond villain. There's just this quiet, talk-like <laughs> demeanor to him, um, which is, is, makes him even more of a compelling character. Yeah, Sony had, I think, ImageSoft, and they were getting charged $10 a cartridge for each cartridge as a royalty to Nintendo. And so the the video game systems were profitable. But then when Trip Copkins from Electronic Arts, now known as EA, reverse-engineered the Genesis, he forever changed the way that third-party developers, their relationship with the console manufacturers in the industry. And I don't think Nintendo's actually ever recovered from that. Yeah, I mean, even nowadays, Nintendo definitely has um, seems to have closer ties to the third-party development community than Sony and Microsoft, the other hardware makers. Um, and, you know, sort of talking about Nintendo's practices and, and what made them so unique and so controlling back in the day, it, the way that they treated third parties um, was they, they wanted to be in control. They always took the stance that they wanted to avoid an Atari-like crisis. And so... If a developer, even if they made a great game, they still had to get the uh, Nintendo actually manufacture the cartridges. So at the end of the day, it was up to Nintendo how many cartridges they were going to make. So in the case of, say, Imsoft, let's say they made a good game and they invested half a million dollars or a million plus dollars with marketing. At the end of the day, it was always in the hands of Nintendo to determine how many copies they were going to make. Um, and uh, you know that that you could. I can imagine being in that position where you've invested all this time and all this money, and at the end of the day, it's just up to Nintendo when they want to release the game, if they want to release the game, if it's up to their quality standards, and that's tough. It but is. T- you, can yeah. al- you can also understand it from Nintendo's perspective. They didn't want to release lousy games. They didn't want companies to be able to just market them, market lousy games the way sometimes movies are marketed. So they wanted to have that control. Um, so it, it created an interesting dichotomy. Well, also, too, is if you have five titles to play with, from Nintendo's perspective, you have to be sure that those five don't aren't bad, because then if one of them is bad, then you're just going to have a really hard financial year. Absolutely. And, and in Nintendo's defense, you have to remember that 20 years ago, without the Internet, it was hard to know what you were buying. I remember yeah. going to the wall with my parents, going to the mall with my parents, and after the movie, they were going to buy me and my brother a game. And this was the first time that we were ever going to get a game, not for a birthday or a Christmas gift. And it was, a spe- it's, you know, it, was, it felt so special. And, we, and when we were deciding what game to buy, our entire criteria for selection was just the back of the box. You know, there were no game trailers. There was no place to even talk about the games with other people. There was Nintendo Power Magazine, which was potentially a biased magazine. Um, you know, but, but there was not really a way to know. So Nintendo wanted to make sure that when you, when you were looking at the back of the box, Regardless of what game it was, it was a game that was worth fifty dollars that you weren't going to be disappointed with. Um, so, like this internal rivalry between Sony in Japan and Sony of America, it manifested itself by having El Nissan being dared by the SOJ staff to eat a puff fish. But there was like other <laughs> consequences too, like they couldn't get along with work with Sony, as you mentioned. 
And then Tom tried to set them up with Silicon graphics. And to me, the sad, one of the saddest parts of the book is when Tom hands over the number to um, Howard Lincoln to Silicon <laughs> graphics. Yeah. Like, I give up. Like, this, that, to me, that was like kind of like, I, you know, it's easier to stare out my window than keep this going on. Yeah, I mean, as a writer, what more could you ask for in an ending than yeah. they having the chance to partner with the two companies that eventually resulted in their downfall, being Sony with, that came out with the PlayStation and with Silicon Graphics that uh, developed the chip that was, was, was the basis for the Nintendo 64. Those both, you know, it's not like they could have had those two products, but they could have worked with those two companies to have something similar or to prevent them from entering the market. Um, but Tom tried his best to make that happen and was overruled. And uh, it did not work out too well for Sega. The Saturn was at, what, three ninety nine, And then the old Sega marketing guy, uh, right, uh, Race, he just gets up on stage and says, PlayStation 1, two ninety nine, and leaves. And that was kind of <laughs> the end of the story for Sega. It really was. Um, because Sony, you know, we talked about how Sega's lineage was as a arcade company. Sony is as a consumer electronic company. They're, you know, they made their mark with the Walkman, and they had the ability to make products for cheaper, which is something that Sega couldn't do. So in addition to all the other reasons why the PlayStation was better or a better buy than the, the Saturn, they also could offer it for $100 less. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's, it. that's one of the, big, that's the biggest selling point for consumers. So Steve Rafe, um, one of the uh, most fun guys to speak with, uh, sort of a wild marketing guy, he just went up and gave a famous speech to E3 where all he said was two ninety nine, and that was it. That was all anybody cared about. How much does this cool thing cost? There was a b- internal battle at that time in Sony where they were didn't really want to release a video game system, the board of directors, and then there was an <laughs> yeah. aspect that didn't did want to. But then Olaf, Steve, and uh, Olaf's manager, his boss, I can't remember his name, they all got canned within like a year. Is that just retaliation from the board of thanks but no thanks, we don't really want to get into this in the long term? Or how? why did they get fired so soon after PlayStation 1's launch? Um. My personal take is that it's actually the opposite. I think that um, there was definitely major resistance internally at Sony for going into video games. Um, you know, a lot of it was because they had done so poorly in the in the previous battle between VHS and Betamax, which Sony had Betamax, um, and they didn't really want to get involved in a format war. And, uh, you know, video games were a risky proposition, and that's why they initially wanted to partner with a Nintendo or with a Sega, but... Uh, People like Olaf and Ken Kutaragi, the architect of the PlayStation, really pushed Sony to go on their own. And, and even when they did, and even when they had this 299, this great PlayStation, and great marketing, the people, much of the board were still skeptical that it wasn't going to work. Um, but when it did, they wanted to take credit for it, and they no longer wanted the people who had made them successful in place anymore. You know, one of my favorite headlines was, congratulations, you're fired. And it was basically all the people who had built the PlayStation in America and in Europe, losing their jobs, while uh, others took over and maybe took credit for their, those accomplishments. Other stories in that, uh, in within the book that don't directly deal with the war between Sega and Nintendo. One of the more fascinating ones was of uh, Emil uh, Heidenkamp, and he was an employee yeah. at, uh, I believe, uh, uh, Konami. And he yep. was a born-again Christian, and he saw the enhanced graphics capabilities and worried about when or was this going to turn into pretty violent video games. In your research, did you happen to see kind of the origins of what we now call Gamergate emerge? 
Um, what do you, in what sense do you mean? Well, like the the the, 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 not so much the violence, but the chauvinistic nature of some of the storylines and video games that we now, you know, there's certain segments of our society that view that as a right to, to do that kind of a video game. And that there's certainly the case for it. But then there's a backlash against anyone like Anita right. Storasam who brings up, hey, this is really sexist. And did you see the Absolutely. origins of that starting to form even in the early 1990s in your research? Yeah, I mean, I would even argue it's, it certainly comes into focus during this time period. And uh, one of the largest prevailing threads throughout the story that isn't totally related to Sega Nintendo is just this idea of the content in the games that sort of reaches a climax in December of 1993 when video games are brought before Congress to talk about violence and other lewd and maybe chauvinistic types of behavior occurring in the game. Um, but, but, you know, I think that going back even a decade before to Atari or to um, Magnavox or Mattel with the Intellivision, video games have always or had always been sort of a boys club. And, and what made um, Sega of America so unique and Nintendo of America as well to an extent was that they really did have a lot of top, uh, higher level female executives. Um, none of the Top executive staff were women, but there but there were a lot of women at uh, Sega of America, like Diane Fournatier and Ellen Beth Van Buskirk and Michaeline Risley and uh, Madeline Schroeder that played a, a huge role, um, which is, is still a problem in the industry, um, and, and it wasn't one that Sega was able to permanently solve. But but kind of I think at the root of your question, and even at the root of Gamergate, is that um, a lot of times what sells in any entertainment medium, is the lowest common denominator. And yeah. Sega was willing to stoop lower than Nintendo when it came to that and, and probably entertain games that had uh, more male uh, testosterone-infused teams. Um, but you kind of, the prevailing message, I think, is that these games seem to sell, and that's why you have a situation like Gamergate today. Um, but what kind of Sega proved also is that there's other types of games that sell, like educational games, and they even started focusing on games that were more for women. And that kind of started to happen around 94, 95, when uh, the rug was pulled out from under them. And I think that really could have been a way that we avoided some of the prevalence of these themes today if, if Sega had really been able to continue in that fashion. You mentioned about an alternative reality. Have you ever imagined an alternative reality but with the Sega Nintendo system if Tom Kalinske never leaves the beaches of Hawaii on vacation? How would a Sega story <laughs> played out in that regard? Uh, no, I haven't. That's a great question. I've always just taken it as, um, you know, destiny that Tom ends up Sega. But that's a really good point. You know, it's hard to say because going back to the sports analogy, you know, a lot of the pieces were put in place before Tom got there, you know, in the same way that a new coach takes over, but the draft picks and, and everybody that's already in place could be credited to a different regime. But I think you have to give a lot of credit to the person who knows what to do with those pieces. Um, and I don't think Sega would have been very successful without Tom, um, even though there, there were a lot of great assets that say, yeah, be it games or be clever employees. You, you kind of need that person with the magic touch to make it all happen. And that's why I think after he left, it didn't happen again. Um, but that it's an interesting, um, an interesting thought experiment. Uh, one one thing that if you had told me back in 1990 would have happened, I would have thought it was from an alternate timeline. But it, it amazes me today that Sonic and Mario are, are appearing in games together. Um, it's it's 
so funny to see these two rivals now appear in the same games. I, I asked my seven-year-old cousin if he knows Sonic and Mario, and he said, yeah, of course, they're friends. <laughs> they're no, they're friends. mortal enemies. Come on, man. <laughs> no, they're <not laughs> that's, that's really funny. We've got to get going. Our show is up, but uh, I've been talking to Blake J. Harris. His book, it's my favorite book I've read this year, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation, Console Wars. It's a good, he, You're currently working on a documentary of it now, and it's going to be a feature-length film soon as well, I believe. Yep. Yeah, that's a great job on the book, and thanks for being on the show this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.